You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to part two. I'm Tanya Pinkins on You Can't Say That, my conversation with Ari Daniels. I think we're going into guns now. So we were talking about Antifa, oh, and Antifa, I know that you were right. in Charlottesville in 2017 because I was kind of talking yeah. to you and watching you. Yeah, we we moved not too long after that, um, but we were in Charlottesville. I was there in the park that day. Um, I I refer to the the two sort of, if you will, distinct groups of people. Uh, I would say there were two sides that day, and they're what I call park side and street side, um, and. That day, I'm sure much to some people's chagrin, I was as neutral as I could possibly be. Um, I was there assisting a friend of mine who was a journalist, and I was basically there just filming. I was just running around. If he needed something, uh, you know, I had extra batteries for phones. Yeah, I had cameras strapped to my head. I had my iPhone out. I was walking around trying to get as much of what was going on as I could to help him. And uh, in really good part, just for my own purpose, I probably would have done the same thing anyway, except I might not have, you know, I might have not done quite so neutrally as in that case, right? In, in, in that case, I was I was acting as a professional's assistant, and so that was one thing. Um, I'm, I'm sure there would have been some profanity coming from my lips were it not, were it not, uh, were it not incumbent upon me to stay quiet for the cameras. But um, yeah. I was in Charlottesville, and Jess was none too happy about it. My mom was none too happy about it. I had programmed in a little uh, thing on my phone so I could just type two letters and hit send, and that would let everybody know I was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so KB was Colba said there. And I saw was- some of that video on Facebook while it was filming, and it was like the police seemed to just be doing nothing. Like extra nothing. Like you have to go out of your way to do that amount of nothing. You know, somebody's coming at you and you're like, oh, see, I better, I better slide out of the way here. Go ahead. You know, that's, that's, that's active nothing. That's, that's not just nothing. I mean, it's, it was, it was scary and it was, I don't know why it was surprising. I don't have that same kind of relationship with cops that a lot of folks do, but you know, I I have my opinions. Um, My opinions sometimes get me into trouble. Learn things, right? (laughs) Someone says all cops are bastards. You're like, but wait a minute. Are all cop? Don't don't even ask. Don't even ask. Um, but that was that was uh, an unreal day. It was an unreal day. I can't. I still. There's a part of it surreal for me. And I mean, you know a bit about my history. Probably a lot more than you. Probably know more than all but three people in, in on the planet about my history. Um, and you know, probably part of what my experience with abuse gave me was a certain disconnection from it. You know, there's this like just absolute, I, I don't know if Taoist, I, I'm sure that a lot of different angles will, will, will approach this thing the same way, but basically like I, I can remove myself from an emotional connection to things pretty well. That's not saying that I'm a sociopath. I'm certainly not emotionless, but I do have what I consider to be now a very useful ability to 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 put it on hold and then to process it really well and and whether that's who knows maybe it's an unhealthy outlook i doubt it 
Um, but uh, that was, it was a hell of a day. It was a hell of a day. Nazis, like straight up actual full-blown fucking Nazis. Um, Walking the streets of America, protected by the U.S. Shouting, shouting at and beating people. Fucking shooting at people. I mean, I, I forget the dude's name. Like proud Klansman pulls out a gun and we don't know whether he accidentally screwed up his first shot and would have actually shot the guy, but you know, maybe he had that extra half a second to think about it, or maybe he was just trying to fire a warning shot. I don't know. I can't get inside this head. I wouldn't want to get inside this guy's head, but you know, fired a gun, then walks past police officers. Do you know what happens when most people pull out a squirt gun? Right. Well, not most people. It just depends on where you are, right? right? Who's, who's there, why they're there. It was, it was a thing anyway. So yeah. And, and after that, the follow up, some of that video made it into a documentary, Charlottesville, our streets, that uh, you know, I, the extent of my help was a little bit of logistics help and, you know, giving them my footage. But, you know, I think it was, it was important perspective. Uh, they, we, I do a much lesser degree since I wasn't as directly involved, took some flack for not my words, but normalizing Nazis. There were two people interviewed in this documentary. Most of the people interviewed were, you know, folks in Charlottesville, from Charlottesville, on what I would call the street side, right? And and if you need me to say it, the good guys, um, the, the people who were opposed to the fascists and the whatever neo-fascists and the Proud Boys and all of that shit. And then you had all the other assholes. But there were two folks who were inter uh, who were interviewed in that documentary. One was one of the he was the leader, one of those little militias out of Pennsylvania, one of the three percenters or something like that. Um, they think themselves neutral. They show up and they have their backs to the folks on the park side and they have a number of nice little patches, many of which were, you know, the Confederate flag and whatever else and variations on a theme, the modern swastikas, as many people have identified, you know, the, the blue lives matter flag, you know, what, what is this now? A lot of people may not realize it, but it's, that's what the swastika was in 34. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, um, and then one of the other guys was actual, I I don't know which little branch of Nazis. I I gather they've got a bunch of little subdivisions or whatever, but one of the Nazis, um, and as the people who were making the film felt that it was important to get at least a sample of, I think that's important too, because people want to pretend these things aren't happening. They want to pretend it doesn't exist. Like for me, seeing those people in Washington this weekend, burning BLM flags, that was a lynching. That was a symbolic lynching. They were trying to bring back that collective pleasure and joy that they used to get from lynchings. 100%. 100%. And to look, I realize there are times that I will basically contradict myself. Um, in this particular case, 100%. Very important to bring light to that. Absolutely. And at the same time, I also think that a long, long time ago, or starting a very long time ago, by a long time I now mean four years, uh, and and moving forward, we should have had the cameras off and the microphones muted for like 99.5% of, of what the, the flaming orange asshole in the White House has been doing and saying. Most of that, most of it, 
is a windbag making noise, right? But you know, nobody wants to hear me when 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 my body acts as a literal windbag and I make noise, right? I mean, nobody's like, "Ooh, wait, did I hear Ari fart?" No. Les Moonves you, you says it made them money, and this you know this death economy that is this growth infinite growth economy is is a death economy. Yeah. Now, yeah. did you tell me that sometimes you've gone out to be like security for BLM? Um, like you just, yeah. a, I don't think I've told you. Okay. That. I don't know. I mean, like I sometimes think for myself that like, I don't want to be in the March. I want to be on the outside of the people who might come to attack the people in the March. So I can be on that third ring. You know what I mean? That's how I think of myself. That's what my firearm is for, for me, other than protecting myself in my home. So I, uh, so I am, I am, I guess my certifications have run out, but you know, I was, I am trained and was certified in disaster travel and wilderness first aid, uh, have studied a bit, uh, just to focus on street medicing because it's a slightly different game. Um, in, in part because your, your threats are different. Um, but I haven't, I haven't actually done anything, uh, in quite a while. Luckily things have been relatively quiet and God, as sad as this is, one of the switches that COVID turned off, or at least turned way down, was you know public violence and and stuff like that. Now that was my impression until very very recently, when obviously a shitload of people are out doing all sorts. Of, I mean, anyway, uh, for a while it happened, and at, at very least, thankfully, we haven't had any school shootings in quite a while. To my knowledge, we have had school shootings. Meetings. We've had some school shootings. Yeah. We actually still have had school. Sh- we, well, I don't know if there's school shootings so much as we've still had like 400 mass shootings this year that defined as more than two people. So they haven't more been school two, shootings. So for a while I knew that, yeah, like the mass shootings I thought was four people. You're right. It's four. We've had, I'm going to look it up right now because I, I know we've had a bunch of them because I looked this up recently. Either way, either way, that doesn't surprise me too much because I mean, hey, nobody's nobody's showing you how to have a big gathering like <laughs> most of the congressional Republicans. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, hey, uh, you know what? I think would be a great idea. I think we should have a maskless gathering, right? And, and, and they, there's anybody, a big party scheduled soon. Somebody in the government is planning one soon. So you're on a mountain. So you don't. How do you work from home? How are you an engineer working from home? I am. I'm going to turn my camera around here. Those four screens comprise my my workstation setup. Um, I it was it was pretty awesome. Um, I was working in construction management uh, because I took a job out of school in Portland, Oregon. It was what was available. It's very hard to have a job search or, or get a job from across the country, and especially when you're trying to move to a place that's desirable like Portland, Oregon. Uh, but I you know I used to live there. I loved it. Just went out there a few summers, fell in love. So, uh, found slash got myself a job in Portland, Oregon, or just outside of Portland, and um, it it was a great place to be. Uh, but it was not a great job for me at that time, at least in that context. I like the company, I like the people that I worked with. It just it, it didn't suit me. It was a lot of hours. It was fast paced. Construction management is kind of um, combative mm. and. Uh, sort of oppositional 
uh, it just imagine a lot of testosterone, mm. right? Um, so, and, and you don't need testosterone. It's like my mom's term, humdo, right? Heterosexual male dominance units. You don't need to be heterosexual or male to have humdo, mm. but humdo is just it's that it's that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so. Portland. I was there. I was looking for work again, trying to come back across the country. Uh, somebody turned me on to uh, an available job with the company that I'm still with right now. And uh, it, the second question they asked me on the phone uh, in our interview was, how do you feel about remote work? And I had always been told not to ask an employer, hey, how, you know, how, how do you feel about work from home? Like, you know, how about remote work? Um, up until and including, you know, a year ago when I was first doing my search out of school, but they asked me, and I'm like, "Is this a is it a trick question? Because if you want me to like it, I like it, you know." And it was it was the thing. They're like, "Yeah, yeah." So what we're doing is we're moving offices. We're actually downsizing. We don't have enough space for everybody. So what we'd like is, you know, at least for the first year, we want you in a few days a week, and then you know, scale back whatever. And you know, we have people who are completely remote. Um, some people come in once a week or something like that. And I was like, "Awesome! It's environmental engineering, you know, pays well enough." And they're telling me I get to work from home. So what do you do? Me, me asking me begging. So I am a water resources engineer. Um, earlier today, I was wearing a t-shirt that said water resources engineer. I do precision guesswork based on unreliable data provided by those of questionable knowledge. Um, the subtle implication there that not a lot of people read the subtext is that I am often one of those people of questionable knowledge providing unreliable data. It is what it is. We all make mistakes. But I am, I am a perfectionist. Uh, and as I said, I'm focused on continuous improvement. There's always room for improvement. I mean, I go back to my best design. I'm like, ah, I could have done it a little better. But um, primarily, <laughs> I, I loved this. It was one of these little sort of like mimetic prompts. It was a describe what you do or describe your job badly. Uh, and my response was, I design mud puddles. Um, so I, I am a stormwater engineer, uh, primarily a design engineer. And what I do is I design best management practices to treat stormwater runoff primarily to help keep the Chesapeake Bay clean. Mm. So we're not exclusively a Chesapeake Bay organization. We're, you know, we've done work around the world. We've actually done work in but what is the Chesapeake Bay Islands. clean? Where, what is, what does that mean? So the, to, okay. The Chesapeake Bay, um, for those who don't know, and many of you may not, uh, is, I can't remember whether it's, I don't know. It's, it, it's the top couple largest. It's got a 64,000 square mile, watershed, which means the 64,000 square miles of land, which covers Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, DC, uh, I think a tiny piece of Delaware, Pennsylvania, and a little chunk of New York, all of that, all of that water eventually drains to streams that flow all the way down to the Chesapeake Bay. And the Chesapeake Bay is huge. Uh, it is a major driver for everything, uh, for the States, especially the ones, uh, like right around the DC area, like Maryland, and you know Virginia and DC, uh, a huge amount of Maryland's economy depends on the bay. And one of the things that threatens that is eutrophication, which is nutrient loading uh, and and sediment loading. So What's that? the three the three pollutants of concern that I focus most of my work on. And this isn't exclusive. You know, we're we're doing we're branching out a bit. But nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment. And basically, this is the stuff you find in pee, poo, and dirt. Um, and, you know, when we fertilize our lawns, we're throwing nitrogen and phosphorus down. When cows stomp through a stream and, and knock a bunch of the dirt off the sides of the stream bank, you know, that's sediment and it's carrying a lot of phosphorus with it. You know, it, basically, 
natural processes and some unnatural processes um, contribute a bunch of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment to the bay. And the places that you have that are more, I don't want to say urbanized, that feels wrong, but more developed, right? The more impervious area you construct, buildings, parking lots, you know, any anything where the water hits it and it just runs right off. Mm. These surfaces contribute a lot more in terms of water, you know, volume, velocity, and pollutants and contaminants um, than undeveloped. So when you have a bunch of wide open virgin land, like where I am, we're not doing nearly as much in terms of most loading, unless you have heavy agriculture. But So connect me back I'll to the mud puddle. The mud puddle is a bioretention. You're you're like you're a half a second ahead of me there. Um, bioretentions and sand filters and wet ponds and wetlands and things like that. All of these things that are some combination of natural and perhaps built. What they do is they catch water and then through a couple different processes, either filtration or biological and chemical processes that break these things down or fix them in place, it removes the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and the sediment from the water before the water continues its way either downstream to surface waters like streams, rivers, the Chesapeake Bay, or into groundwater potentially. And there are places where the groundwater is basically your seawater or whatever else also. Like if you're in New York, right, Long Island, and just north across that um, that body of water and you've got, I guess it, it abuts Connecticut and, you know, basically all of that area, if you're close enough to the coast, your groundwater is basically seawater. Like there's, there's almost a pretty, you know, regular exchange. If you're pulling your water out of a shallow well, it's salty when you've got a shallow standard septic system. So, you know, you're, you're, toilet flushes into a, an, a chamber of a couple feet underground, the water then just kind of comes and flushes that straight out to, you know, the Bay or the Sound or whatever. Whoa. So, now, where, um, where does all this nitrogen and phosphorus and sediment go after you filtered it out? So uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny because the best thing and, and the, the best thing I think that one can do in their design when it comes to these kinds of things, green infrastructure is what it's called, GI, um, green infrastructure like bioretentions and wetlands and wet ponds. Um, the, the best thing that you can do in these is make them as natural and native and sort of old school and original as possible. In a weird sort of way, you try to design something as primitive as you can, because you know, a bioretention, the, the thing, for a while I called myself the bioretention maestro. It was just, you know, it was what I designed most. They get good credit. They're relatively easy and straightforward to build. You, you know, essentially you've, you've got the land, right? You dig a hole in the land. In the bottom of that hole, you put a pipe that goes out somewhere. You put some gravel over that pipe. You put a little bit of a finer gravel over that gravel so that, you know, the dirt can't clog that pipe. Then you put some good sort of loose sandy soil media you know, just some good dirt, some growing dirt, some potting soil, essentially, with a little bit less organic stuff in it over that. And then, you know, a layer of mulch. The best thing that you can do in this, right? I, I designed this as a structural thing. You can truck in all these materials. The best thing that you can do is specify the right plants because the plants are doing a lot of this work, right? You, you ask a great question, right? Let's say it's just a filter, um, you know, filter a bunch of water through this stuff. This catches all this crap. Well, eventually this is going to get overloaded. You either have to change the filter or it's just no longer useful. And so one of the things that we're doing is that the, the nitrogen and phosphorus specifically is becoming plants, right? When a plant grows, it takes up nitrogen and phosphorus. It's its food, right? I've stopped growing. Now I mostly just turn food into poo. But while plants are growing, they're taking that nitrogen and phosphorus and actually turning them into, you know, they're basically fixing it into some other form. So what you know, plants? All 
Uh, uh, I am not a plant guy. <laughs> so somebody else puts the plants in. You build the... Most of the time, somebody else is specifying the plants. Yeah, at our organization, uh, the guy who knows the most, he's actually a forester. Um, he's you know he he's the guy to go to when, when you need a planting plan. Um, but I've also worked with some other folks who do a wonderful job. Um, and it's, it's not just about specifying the right plants. It's also knowing how to plant them and knowing what to do in order to foster them, knowing where to put them and stuff like that. Um, but... Yeah, a quick shout out to the Center for Urban Habitats. Uh, these folks, Devin Floyd, his wife Rachel, and uh, you know their whole crew, they they do work all through the Piedmont, which is you know mountain range. It it, it extends a, a shoot, I think, well into Pennsylvania and down. I'm not even sure which state south of me, but it's 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 a large range. But what they do is they actually get back to an incredibly old school, like native would grow on its own if you just left shit the hell alone for a thousand years kind of community and it's what they're doing is they're trying to design essentially ecosystems mm. you know you, you put the right plants in it brings in the right pollinators you get the right you know dragonflies and butterflies and, and things like that what all of these things do together is again way beyond me i'm a structures guy right I, but you and jess I go out and do a lot of protesting for things too i we we do a lot of our work now from home. Really? So no going out. Whatever it is. I, well, I mean, and never mind coronavirus. You're vegan, um, right? We, so you we, know something about plants because yeah. you're, you're not vegan? Oh, that's right. Because we, we talked about, about beer. Why did, why did I think you were vegan? Where did I get that uh, idea see, the, from? There are, a lot of, there are a lot of associations. I am a staunch environmentalist. And there are people who maintain that in order to be an environmentalist, you must not eat animal products See? and there's there's a way to and a way not to and i look i i fully understand and appreciate <laughs> if if you're if you're a vegetarian or vegan because you don't want to cause harm right uh ahimsa i believe is the term um i, I don't know if it's sanskrit or whatever but anyway you know the the, the yoga folk for, for lack of a better so, term so of, of whom jess is one uh you know do no harm is jess a vegan? and i understand is she a that. vegan She's not. Oh. No, she also she eats a little bit of. Okay. Meat. We're mostly vegetarian. She eats a little bit of meat. I eat more meat than her. Still not a ton. I have aspired for a long time to personally harvest. I don't need soft language or euphemistic language to personally kill all of the meat that I eat. Mm. Um, and if if you eat meat and have never, I don't want to say never killed an, an animal for food, uh, but at least seen, I, I think that everyone who eats meat should maybe once a year watch an animal go from alive to dead to have that direct connection to what it is that their food actually is, what their food actually right. is, where it comes from. Yeah. You know, if you haven't seen an animal die and it's not, it's not a pleasant thing to watch. I'm a hunter. I like hunting. I don't like killing as, as weird as that is. I'm out there with a gun. I dislike killing, but it's, it's what I do for a couple different reasons. One of which is that is the most direct connection I can get to my food. Um, two, it's good food. I mean, there is plenty of evidence, yes, that humans most likely mostly can do mostly without yada, 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 right? Every, every diet's different. Some people can't do without meat. Some people can't do very well with meat. Um, but if you look just at purely evolutionary evidence, yeah, we, we kind of, we evolved eating meat. In fact, it's part of why we evolved these brains of ours. This is basically because of meat. This is because we eat meat. Um, or ate meat, I guess. Now we could probably do without, but shit, I know some people who could use a little bit more brain power. So um, I'm not saying that meat makes you smarter. I'm saying that meat helps your species evolve over millennia. Anyway, um, I eat meat, absolutely. 
Um, but not a well, lot. I'm going to have to come to Virginia and you're going to have to help me kill a deer so I can have that experience. Cause I'm willing. You come on out. You come on out. What we'll do I have covered. to shoot with a rifle? So <laughs> this conversation is wandering in an odd direction. I guess not because I, I live in Monterey, but um, I, I actually personally really like muzzleloader season. Muzzleloader. Um, muzzleloader. So you, you have a, you have a, a gun, right. whether it's a pistol or a rifle or whatever, but you load the bullet from the end of the barrel. Right. So this is, this is my gun. Okay. I, I load it from the muzzle, okay. not the, not the breech. Okay. And it's a single shot, right? It's just like the old school, the muskets or whatever you take, a you take powder, you put powder in or a little powder, you know, pellets or something like that. You put a bullet in, you jam that thing down the barrel and then you put a cap or, or a primer or something like that in the back, you pull the hammer and now you're ready. You've got one shot, one shot, one shot. If you miss with that one shot, you either have to reload quickly and hope that you didn't lose your deer or it's, it's basically done. I, I have taken a shot at a deer, missed. It didn't know where I was. And it ran up the road, not, not road road, it was a trail back through the woods, but it ran up the trail right at me. And I was sitting here like, I, you know, the first thing I do whenever I take a shot is, is watch to see where the deer goes. You know, and then I try to reload as quickly as I can. But it ran right up and it stopped. It's like, oh, I'm like, yeah, that was me. And then it ran up the hill. I didn't have time to So why to do you like if, that way? If I had had a second shot. Why do you like that so, way? Two reasons. One, it's it's a compromise between not being like a, a total, essentially omnipotent asshole, and like old school, like you know, arr, you know, killing a deer with my teeth, right? Somewhere, somewhere in the middle. I, look, I, I I wanted to bow hunt. The thing about bow hunting is, well, there are two things about bow hunting. One, for me, every time I've done it, I call it bow hiking or bow sitting because very rarely see a deer. My useful range with a bow is up to maybe 40 yards, but honestly, 20 to 30. And the deer are going to smell me or hear me or see me long before I smell, hear, or see them. Typically, if I'm in a little blind, if I built myself a little shelter, I'm sitting there and I wait all day long, maybe one's going to walk in front of me. But you don't go and find, you know, I'm not going to stalk a deer and find it and shoot it with a bow. It's, they're, they are incredibly impressive animals, right? I can't leap a six foot fence in a single bound. It's just, that's, that ain't me. I can't run 30 miles an hour or whatever it is they do, right? That's just, that's not me. They run through brambles like it's nothing. I'm like, I'm, I'm hung up on my, my coveralls trying to get myself out of the brambles and shit. Anyway, so suffice to say, absolutely a ranged weapon is the advantage. I, I could not catch and kill a deer if it came down. And you don't, I understand that. And you want to level the playing field a little bit. You don't want to just have a rifle where you could just get boom, 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 boom. So during rifle season, which fortunately lasts only two weeks or so out here, um, it, it sounds like a war zone. There's just a lot of shooting going on. And, and it also allows you to shoot really far. The, the useful range, I mean, I'll take a shot up to about 100 yards or so with a muzzleloader. So I get one shot. It's only up to 100 yards. Um, and it's, it's part that. It's also part you've got much more season. You've got an extra five weeks of the year that you can hunt, or maybe even seven weeks of the year that you can hunt with a muzzleloader over a regular rifle, this, a centerfire rifle. Um, and you know, having more time, a quieter time, that that bit of leveling of the playing. It, again, it's not a little playing field. I got a gun, right? I mean, no no deer has ever threatened my life. Let me put mm. it that way. Except the ones I've hit with my car, which is another story entirely. Um, but the other thing is that it's also actually a, a particularly practical and good weapon for this area. Because 
it's a lot of fairly thick brush forest and stuff like that. You want a bigger kind of slightly slower moving bullet. These, you know, the high powered rifles that these guys have, you know, some people think that AR-15 is great for everything. They're great for some things. They're probably good for groundhog hunting. You actually can, if you only load three rounds in it, you can use that for hunting a lot of things. You can't hunt deer with it here because the bullet's slightly too small, but those small, really super fast bullets, when they're zinging like that, they touch a little twig or a branch. It diverts their path enough that you're missing shots. You you want you want like the lumbering thing. So you know, 44 or 50 caliber moving two thirds the speed of some of these high powered rounds. It kind of pushes through the woods to a little bit uh, of an extent. And also, I've just had better. I don't want to say. I've had more, more and better luck with it. It's I, I am all about a humane kill. Well, I like that. I don't want I don't want the deer to live any long. Yeah, I mean, I'd love for it to not live, you know, two seconds past. You know, there's whatever. you don't want it if to see an animal die. It's a few seconds. I don't want it to suffer. I've killed forty with firearms, and uh, two of them made a very very short run. Two of them dropped right where they were. I did my job right. I have passed on many more shots than I have taken. I've seen deer plenty of times. I've had pretty darn good shots. If I'm not 99.5% sure that I've got what's going to be a quick kill on you know, a, a legal appropriate and sort of ecologically appropriate deer, I'm not going to take the shot. So I've, Lord knows I've probably passed 10 times as many shots as I've taken. But I don't take crap shots. One of the reasons is I have no faith in myself as a tracker. <laughs> if I don't want to wound a deer, right? For for it, I, I definitely don't want something suffering, but you know, I'm also just not confident that I can end it that quickly, right? You know, if I wound it, it might make it three, four hundred yards. I don't know that I can track it for three or four hundred mm-hmm. yards, depending on the conditions outside. And I don't want it to sit and die slowly. Thank you, Ari. So I thank you hi. for coming and talking to me. <laughs> We've had quite a conversation from from hunting to water as a life interest to building a house to Nazis. You're listening to Tanya Pinkins. I always take you somewhere you've never been before. This is You Can't Say That on the Broadway Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to You Can't Say That, the show where you can. I'm Tanya Pinkins, and You Can't Say That is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals, edited by Derek Gunther, with music by Kat Dale. If you like what you hear, Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast highly wherever you stream. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Tanya Pinkins. And to learn more, visit bpn.fm forward slash YCST. Stay safe. You is kind. You is smart. You is important. You is dead. Tanya Pinkin's horror film, Red Pill, brings African-American perspective to progressive movement. We are a majority in this country. And we're going to win the election. Do you know what the red pill is? A red pill is someone who infiltrates a group and then destroys them from the inside. This place is spooky. Some people like to live dangerously. Gas, why are you so jumpy tonight? You know what, guys? I'm gonna go back tomorrow. Did you hear about the creature woman that attacked a father and son hunting down here? I don't see the case. 
This place creeps me out. I think we should call the sheriff's office. missing or dead are brown people they're after all of us what do we do amelia we die but we take some of them with us hi i'm tanya pinkins and i would love to hear from you you can text me at 917-724-8998 tell me what you're up to and i'll let you know what i'm up to text me 917-724-8998. Let's keep in touch. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.